We're in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we've been in this since the very first Sunday in December. So if you have your Bibles with you, this would be a good time to open them. We are in chapter 4. It's taken us that long, verse by verse, to get here. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some here on the table. Uh, it would be a good idea maybe to grab one. Uh, this particular book, uh, we've been describing it in a number of different ways. Uh, I've been teaching the well, the basic idea is that Luke is a Gentile, pagan, Greek who never personally met Jesus in his personal walk in life. He was a skeptic who came to faith in Jesus. He's a historian, a documentarian. He, he's a physician, which means in that day he's kind of like a scientist. And, and he records this book, including the book of Acts, two that follow, one that follows the other. He, he wrote both of them to a person, to a guy by the name of Theophilus, who was also, uh, as far as we know, a Roman a governor of some kind uh, or a, an official. And, and he himself also had come to faith in Jesus. And he says in the first four verses that I'm writing this to you, O Theophilus, so that you may have certainty about Jesus, about your faith. And so it's, I've kind of called this gospel the skeptic's gospel, and it is. It's, it's really interesting how Luke orders all these things. So I'm going to read the first 13 verses of chapter 4. Then we're going to pray one more time, and then we're going to dive in. So read with me, would you? And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, would you? Father, you were there. The Lord Jesus was there. Holy Spirit, you were there. We thank you that this story has been recorded. We thank you and know that this story could only be recorded because Jesus told it to his disciples. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for being there. We thank you for the stand that you took. We thank you that you're showing us something about what we also can and must do. And you're also showing us upon who we need to rely. And so, Lord, I just pray that today you would, you would give us strength and courage and confidence in that. And I pray that in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. 
So last week, uh, we watched Jesus get baptized by John the Baptist. That was pretty, pretty exciting. The heavens opened up. <clears throat> the Father's voice could be heard from above. The Holy Spirit physically descended and rested on Jesus as a dove. It was incredible. We, we, we noted that this is one of the undeniable points, not only in the Bible, but in history, where God is here. God is, and God is here. It's one of those points in history, and especially in the New Testament, and especially when it comes to you and I, where, where, where it's evidence that God has broken in to His creation. I mean, this week when I was speaking with these young people up at Quest, I mean, one of the evidences that I gave them for God was general revelation, which is, look, look out there. It's called creation. It's not an accident. He spoke it. He created it out of His mind and out of His will. He's the one who can break into history as well, and that's what we saw last week. But we also saw this. God is triune. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all there, unified around Jesus. And we also asked this question last week. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Why did He need to be baptized? He, he had, we know, has no sin to repent of, so why is He being baptized? Well, we, we looked at a number of different reasons, but probably the key thing that we saw, especially in the context of what we've seen so far in the gospel, and especially with what we see today, this was making this point. He is being, although He's already from the womb, full of the Holy Spirit, He's being specially anointed by the Holy Spirit for the work of ministry that's ahead of Him. He, Jesus, fully God, fully man, needed this. That's important. It's not just, uh, well, uh, to fulfill all righteousness. Yeah, that's really important, which was why He did it, but He needed this. He needed His best friend to be with Him, the Holy Spirit. And we are told in 3.23 that Jesus is 33 years of age when He begins His work of ministry. And so in Jesus' case, we need to see this. Although this episode is also preparing Him for the work of His ministry, He's been preparing for 30 years. <laughs> Again, it makes me think of the students this week, and they're smart. They're really, really smart. But we have this idea in our culture today that you can go to high school, you can go to university, get a degree, and 23, you're ready. I'm like, Really? I know, I know I wasn't until I was at least 43, right? There's a lot of preparation required. Jesus has been preparing for 30 years. And so this is a good point for me to make an important point, an important point about this story that we see here today. There are those who might think that, listen, some of you might think, I think I thought this for a while, that wait a second, okay, come on, He's Jesus. He's God, Right? Of course he can go into the wilderness and starve for 40 days and, and then be attacked by this guy. And, and of course he's not going to be tempted to sin. He's God. I don't know if you've thought that, but, but I think I have. And therefore, you know, sometimes maybe we think that he didn't need to really grow mentally, physically, emotionally, or, or even maturity-wise. You know, because he's God. He didn't really need it. He just needed to show up and get her done. That would be false. That would be false to think that about Jesus. 
Remember after circumcision and dedication at eight days of age, we read this in Luke chapter 2, verse 40. It'll be on screen for you. And the child, this is Jesus at eight days to, until he's 12, and the child grew physically and became strong, and this in the Greek is literally speaking towards his spiritual de development, filled with wisdom, intellectual, and the favor of God was upon him. And then when he was 12 and in Jerusalem, uh, the year that he's in preparation for his 13th year, which was his bar mitzvah, after all that has taken place, after that episode at 12 years of age, which is the last time that we hear about him until he arrives at his baptism, Luke records this, and Jesus, now he's no longer a child, he's 12, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And he continued to as he learned carpentry with his dad, Joseph, until he was 30 years of age and until his baptism. So why is this important at this point? Because again, as I've said, some of us may mistakenly be thinking, well, he's Jesus. Right? He, he, he's God. And of course, he's not going to be tempted to sin even though he's desperately hungry. And the problem with that, I think, is this. That could leave you and I off the hook. It could leave you and I with the sense that, well, we should never be expected by God to be able to accomplish the same things that He did in the wilderness. Well, let's see how that works. <laughs> well, let's see how that works in this story here today. First two verses again are, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and He ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he was hungry. <laughs> really. So Jesus is now baptized. He is, the Scripture shows us here, he's full of the Holy Spirit. And, and the Holy Spirit at this point, obviously in the text, is kind of like going, okay, take my hand. We're ready to go do this, right? We're ready to go and declare the kingdom of God is at hand, and you're ready to become king of the world, and, and you're ready to conquer this thing, and we're ready to wrap it all up, ready? You're ready, right? That's actually not what we read, is it? It's not what we read at all. It's, it's actually more like he says, first, listen, Jesus, there's this dude I want you to meet. There's this guy I want you to meet. And in fact... He has a date with you. He wants to meet you too. He wants to meet you too. So I, I want to make sure that we see this. This isn't one of the big guy's minions, right? The, the minions that you and I have to deal with. This is Darth, full black, on display. This is Satan, the most powerful evil being ever. This is who Jesus has to confront, who Jesus has to go up against. So I want you to remember that. I have to remind myself of that too. When you're feeling kind of, you know, in the wilderness, kind of feeling a little beat up and, you know, like, you know, the, the devil is so bad, you're probably not dealing with him. Please understand that. I, I'm not sure many of us actually could, and that's because of God's protection. So this is not in the same league, not in the same class. Jesus is up against the greatest enemy that we all have. So Jesus is led into a place of solitude. 
He's, he's led to a place far from other people, into a place where there's, there's no human contact, there, there's no one else there to help him, a place where he, he can't be served by anyone, no one can say, hey, this is enough, let me, let me help you, let me get something for you to drink, let me get you something to eat. He does, of course, have his best friend with him. And when I say best friend, I mean, come on, they, they've, they've known each other from eternity, right? They've known each other forever. This is his best friend whom he completely trusts, and he knows he's got him. So what's he doing? He's fasting, and he's praying. Now, the text reveals clearly that he's fasting. We can see that. And some of you may be saying, well, okay, wait a second, Glenn. You know, praying? Yeah. We've seen that actually throughout the whole gospel so far. He's always in a place where he's praying. You remember when he was baptized, right? He's baptized, and then the very next thing that we see when he's baptized, he's praying. So he's baptized, then he's praying, and what happens? The Father's voice shows up. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. What was he doing? He was asking for the Holy Spirit to come to him. That's the interesting thing about praying. You know, that's really what it is. Praying is asking. That's awesome, isn't it? Ask me whatever you want, Jesus says. And if it's in the will of the Father, I will give it to you. Just ask me. I will show up. I will give it to you. And that's what praying is. So again, we see his humanity really in this one verse too as well. And I said this last week, and again, theologically, we need to get this. He's fully man for God and fully God for man. So he's, he's both. He's fully man. He's fully God. He's fully human. And we see this, this humanity here in the fact that he's hungry. He's hungry. He's not just making this up. His physical body is starving for food. Honestly, have you ever done a long-term fast? How many, how many, how many people in this room, put your hand up if you've gone bef- beyond 24 hours? Anybody in this room gone be- before 24? That's awesome. A few people have. How about beyond seven days? Anybody? I do not see a hand. Well, listen, I, I can't put my hand up either. I mean, this is remarkable. I do know people who've done this. Very, very long fasts. This is incredibly, incredibly long. 40 days. So we don't get a lot of details about what actually went on in those 40 days. There are commentators who are not sure whether the devil was tempting him every day, you know, or whether it wasn't until the very end. So we don't have a lot of details, but one thing we'll learn for certain based on the context is that Satan had a clear objective. I tend to think he was waiting. <laughs> I tend to think he was waiting till Jesus was at his weakest point. It's kind of his modus operandi, this guy kind of what he's all about. And the objective of his waiting is to be able to get Jesus at his weakest moment to give up, to give up on the mission and to get him off his game. And guess what? Satan, listen, you've got to understand about this guy. He knows all too well what the mission is. He's not like you and I when it comes to certain things where he's like, well, I, I didn't see that coming right? Like, he's been there since the very beginning in Genesis, right? And he's been there throughout the history of the people of Israel, and, and he's been around. He, he knows what God said about him at various times through the prophets, and when people spoke, he hears these things. He has a pretty good idea of what the mission is. He was there in the garden, as I said, and he heard what God said to Adam and Eve about him, 
the snake that he is? His goal is to make sure that the mission of Christ to come into this world and to rescue you and me will not happen. That's his goal. So Jesus fasting, I think, tells us a very important thing about what Jesus thinks about God and his mission, right? It tells us, really, I think, that God and his mission that he has for him, and actually I think by extension for you and I, is more important than anything else in the world, in his life, including food. That seems to be part of the message that we pick up here. Another thing that I pick up here is that Jesus didn't question the Holy Spirit's, take my hand and follow me. He, He doesn't question this at all. It's not like, excuse me, wait a second. I think I know why I'm here. Do we really need to do this? I mean, I'm ready. Come on, I'm 30 years of age. Look at me. You know, I'm healthiest I've ever been. I mean, let's just go. Let's go and get this thing done. Again, no. We, we don't see that at all. It's, you know, he, he, I don't know about you, but, you know, like I, I have had various times in my life where it was like I was so excited to get started with the next thing in my life, and then all of a sudden it was kind of like, well, yeah, but maybe what you should do is, Glenn, if you really want to be, uh, you know, like this or that, maybe you should train a little bit. <laughs> like whether being an athlete or at one point in time I wanted to be, you know, like seriously a rock and roll drummer in a really good band and, 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 and maybe a jazz band, rock band, whatever it might be because, you know, that was my goal in life when I was in late teens, 20s. And it just kept coming back to me that, you know, you need to sit down, you need to practice more, you need to do your paradiddles and you need to, you know, and I was like, I just want to be on stage. <laughs> like, I just want to get there. I don't want to. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work to be prepared properly. No, in Jesus' case, he's like, all right. He's completely submissive to the will of his Father and the Holy Spirit. He's, there's no question in him about, I'm open to your leading, best friend. And that's what he does. So what happens here shows us two things, I think, also about our enemy. Because you need to know the enemy. Number one... He's really not that brilliant. That's my opinion. He's really not that smart. That's A. He's number. Secondly, he's really rather predictable. And so why do I say not brilliant? Well, he's, he's just been observing Jesus for 40 days. He's just watching him. You know, like he's, he's seeing him there, and he's praying, and he's fasting. And he's getting hungrier, and he's getting hungrier. Like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know how to first tempt this guy, right? Like, I think I could have come up with that. Would you like some bread? <laughs> like, I think I could have come up with that. I don't know about you. It's not that hard. He's predictable. Yes, he's predictable. He attacks Jesus. He attacks Jesus at his greatest point of weakness. This is his modus operandi to this day. Get you to the point where, and here's what we're going to see today, to the point where you actually think you're getting stronger, but you're actually at your point of greatest weakness, and that's when he's, mm, that's when he steps in. So predictable. He does and will do the same thing to you and I over and over again. So, so far this 40-day exercise seems to have a lot to do with food, don't you think? I mean, he's fasting. So, there's, the food is the element here. I, I'm suggesting the, the enemy, Satan, can see that. It's not rocket science, right? And so, then what we read is, obviously, the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. 
So, the devil speaks. He's here, and he's already broken into human history. Remember another time when he spoke? We'll get to that. It's a face-to-face confrontation as well. It's happened at least once before. His first words are these, as you see on screen, if you are the Son of God. But also notice that at the end of the sentence, there's no question mark. The translators have got that right. There's no question mark there at the end of that sentence. It sounds like a question, but it really isn't, right? And again, remember last week, I think I said at least six times that what Luke has been doing since chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 3, he's been you know, showing a lot of things, the birth of Jesus, all these miracles and prophecies, wonderful things. But really, at the end of the day, he has one point of certainty that he wants Theophilus to be picking up throughout all of these stories, and it is this one thing. Jesus is God. Theophilus, you've got to get that. You've got to really understand that. He is God. And then you'll remember that we found it odd that after the baptism account, Luke does something that none of the other gospel writers do. All the other gospel writers go to the, either this story, right, of the temptation of Jesus, or, or they jump into the beginning of his ministry. What does Luke do? He drops in a genealogy. That's very interesting. But he also drops it in in the reverse order of Matthew. And so that Luke's ends with the son of Adam, the son of God. I love that. Isn't that amazing? The Holy Spirit is inspiring Luke to write this in an orderly way so that Theophilus will know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God and so that you and I will believe and know that He is the Son of God. But here's the other thing. Satan knows that. This is not a question. This is kind of a snidely whiplash If you're the Son of God, since actually would be a better way of translating the Greek from Satan's perspective. So here's a question. Is there anything wrong with a baguette? (laughs) Like, I don't know about you guys, but if I was, if I had the the, the ability, seven days, ten days, a 40-day fast, I tell you what, to break a fast, for me, I'd start salivating like, like as if it was sushi. Like I would be thinking, because we're talking bread here, I can't, well, I did mention sushi. But I, I would start salivating thinking about a fresh, out-of-the-oven French baguette. I wouldn't need water to get it down. Look at, it would just be, ah, he's Jesus. This isn't hard. Satan knows that. Jesus, do it. Why don't you do it? Well, he's Jesus. He can do this. He's breaking a fast. And so the question is again, why is this a problem? Think about this. Well, again, this this demonstrates the predictable nature of our enemy. He takes very good things, very good things, spiritually neutral things very often. And when we are most vulnerable, He tempts us to make them into ultimate things, something that will get us off of our game, something that will become more important to us than God Himself. So let me give you some practical examples of that, or let me ask some more questions related to that. Is there anything wrong with wanting to be 
best at something. In other words, to be successful. Is there anything wrong with that? No. Really, is there? I mean, how you get there and your mode and method of getting there maybe is, is wrong or questionable, but the, the idea of being really, really successful, of getting the gold medal of, of, how about this, money, making a lot of money from your success, is money a bad thing? I mean, in and of itself? Remember, it's not money that is the root of all evil. It is the love of money, right? There's a very big difference. Are they bad things? I don't think, I don't think so. They're, they're not bad. I mean, really, they're not. So, in fact, the Word of God says something very interesting related to our text here today about, actually, success to a certain extent, money and, and also eating. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says this, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, he shouldn't eat. Hmm. It's kind of a little bit of a lesson on, you know, like handouts are okay, a hand up is really important, but handouts constantly. Listen, if, no, if you're not prepared to work, son, <laughs> stop playing video games, get out of the house and go get a job, I'm not feeding you. It sounds mean, but it's actually for their betterment. So there's nothing wrong with the good things that God has given to us, is there? There's nothing wrong with success, being good at what you do. There's nothing wrong with money. How about this one, sex? Now, for those of you who are allowed to have sex in this room, is sex a bad thing or a good thing? It's a good thing that God has given to us, really. How about recreation? Look where we live, right? Rock climbing, mountain biking, windsurfing, running, skiing. Bad? No. No, not in and of, in and of themselves. Travel, homes. How about kids? Okay, wait a second. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that one there for I mean, honestly, you know, I could go on and on here. I could just keep picking all these good things, and, and they're good things. It would be wrong for us to sit here and say, well, those aren't good things that God has given to us. There's nothing wrong with these things. We often think this about the devil, though. This is where we've got him wrong. What we think is what he wants us to do is do those obviously bad things. And that's what makes us bad. I said that he's not that smart, actually, He's so devious, I have to give him a little bit of credit here. He's sneaky. He's really sneaky. And see, here's the thing. It's actually much easier for him to get you to make good things into an idol. To take you and me off of our game, which is to make Jesus known, to live for him, and to welcome others into the kingdom of God. He's really good at that. He's good at taking, helping us take morally neutral things and make them into our idol, our ultimate thing. Actually, he's a little smarter than maybe I gave him credit for being. You all know that I, I love Tim Keller, and particularly his definition of an idol, I think, in our North American culture is absolutely the best. Uh, uh, it's just true. He says this, kind of in a two-part. At first, he says this, an idol is, look at this, anything right? It is anything more important to you than God. So listen, if your career, your job, your, your, your success is more important to you in achieving it than being with the gathering of the saints on Sunday morning and being in community and living for God in your life, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you, it's an idol. 
It's good things can be turned into that. And then he also said this, and I love this, a counterfeit God, right, which is what an idol is. We, we, we turn them into gods. They control us. We have to spend money on them. We have to appease them. And we think that they're going to bring us joy and happiness in this world. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. This is serious stuff. In 2008, when the market crashed in the United States, there were a number of men, mostly, that I'm aware of anyway, who had made many, many millions of dollars over many years trading stock and so forth, and then in one fell swoop had lost it all. And what was the solution for them? Step out of a window and fall eight to ten floors to their death? Idols will crush us. Idols will crush us. They really will. What the devil wants more than anything else, I've said this before, this is a little hard, but we need to hear it. What he wants more than anything else is to get you and I to trust in the good things that God has given to us so that you will seek to find all your joy, all your happiness in them. Once they're gone or broken, whose fault is that then? Who do we generally blame? God, why did you take away my house? God, why did you take away this person from my life? Isn't that where we kind of go? I mean, God, I was, this was a good thing, and now I've lost it? Satan has really one goal for you and I, and it is this. One goal, just one thing. Death. That's what he wants. If at all possible, he wants you to die without Christ. That's ultimate death. But you know what he will settle for? He will settle for you and I being functionally dead with Christ. He'll settle for that. If that's the best he can get, he'll settle for that because he doesn't like us very much, especially if we're in Christ. We are the image of God in this world. So to accomplish the latter... He's like, here's a good thing that you could make your God for the time being. He's just continually presenting these things to us until that good thing has become an ultimate thing and then your joy is all gone and you're going to jump. And it doesn't necessarily have to mean to your death, but you, you may start drinking, taking drugs. You may, who knows? Well, the beautiful thing is, thankfully, Jesus, Jesus came to give you life and life more abundantly. And Jesus always has the best answers for every circumstance, every trial, every temptation that you or I will ever fall into, and he demonstrates that for us. Jesus answered him and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. There's such simplicity and purity in what Jesus just said. It's, it's far more powerful, I think, than I can convey, than maybe most of us can understand. He just answers. He has the answer. And even to this day, He is answering for you before the throne of God and for me. So look at His source. Jesus uh, says it is written. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. I love this. It reminds me of many years ago. I, I can't get the picture to my head. Billy Graham's doing a crusade. There's thousands of people in this 
football stadium, right? And there's some dude way up, way up in the corner, and every time Billy tries to talk, this guy's just screaming at him, right? And there's no microphones on this guy. Billy's got the microphone, but you can hear him. He's just screaming, right? And, and Billy would just stop and quote a scripture. The guy would start screaming more, like it went on literally three times. And finally, the third time that Billy quoted a scripture, the guy just fell down in his seat, and the ushers came and had to carry him out. He was, he was whooped. I, I love that picture. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, And he humbled you, let's see if I've got it, yeah, and he humbled you and let your hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make, you, make known to you that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of our Lord. I mean, this is the time of the Exodus, right? God's leading His people out of captivity, providing for their needs in every way, their needs, not their wants, but their needs in every way possible. How many years was that, by the way? How many years was that Exodus? Oh, 40. Okay. Four. Yeah, yeah. Wow, okay. 40 days. I, some strange coincidence there. I don't know what that is. The temptation that the devil offered was very appetizing, wasn't it? I mean, come on, it was. He was hoping it would appeal to Jesus' humanity, his fleshly desires, and frankly, deep need for food. Jesus literally had this deep need for food. But Jesus says to him that the Word says there is something that will sustain you better and more fully than that. Him. Jesus didn't forget this event. That's what he really meant because later in the Gospel of John in chapter 6, verse 35, he says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is saying, feed on me. You hungry? Feed on me. Feed on me. It's, it's, a, it's a buffet that never, never ends. We can feed on Christ. It's amazing. So the less than simple attempt of the devil to get Jesus off of his game was to say this, since, not if, you are the Son of God. Listen, Jesus, you can do this. It's okay, right? You, you can satisfy yourself right now, right here. Food's a good thing. You're good. Come on. Take things into your own hands. This is kind of what he's getting at with Christ here. Now, this, come on, this is true. You've never been taught by anybody, right? You've never been taught that what, what you need to do to find success, joy, and happiness in life is to, come on, carpe diem, seize the day, take things into your own hands. The power is within you. You've never been taught that, have you? You've never thought that, have you? Thank you, Jesus. I appreciate the fire insurance. I'm glad I know you. Now I got to go out and make success for my own life by myself. I got it. Danger. <laughs> That's the point of danger that we all need to see. It's, it's, again, we've got to remember the wide road, narrow gate thing that Jesus talks about in the parables, right? That's the way everybody's thinking, by the way. That's the wide road. Everybody's doing it. Everybody thinks this is the way of wisdom to success and happiness and joy in life. And Jesus is saying, uh-uh. <laughs> Actually, it requires wilderness but I'll be there. How many people really who want to be successful and happy and joyful in life are going to pick the wilderness? <laughs> Most people will not pick the wilderness. It goes on, temptation number two, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and said to him, 
he said to him, this is incredible, to you I will give, just a bit arrogant, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give to whom I will, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, come on, we're, there's the cross. We're on this side of it quite a ways now. And, and, and we can look at that and we can go, really? Who does this guy, is this guy think he really is, right? So the first temptation is obviously appealing to the human appetite to make good things ultimate things and not God. The sem- second is this. It's, it's about power. It's about control. In your hands, in my hands, to have our life the way we want it, in other words, our own kingdom. It's about my kingdom, not God's kingdom. That's what this temptation is ultimately about. The devil, and by the way, he's not lying here. He, he's not lying. He is the father of all lies, but here he's not lying. He has been given this authority, but not over God, who has the ultimate authority. So what's his offer then? It's this. It's this. This is kind of his offer. You, Jesus, you, Glenn, <laughs> you, fill in the blank with your name, right, can, can have not just all the good things in this life. You can have not just that, but you can also have the power and control over your life and destiny of your kingdom if… <laughs> Big trade-off here, big if, if you will just worship me, Satan. Have you heard this offer before, <laughs> right? Is this not the exact same offer that he gave to Adam and Eve? It is, right? That's why I said he's not the sharpest tool in the shed. He's pretty repetitive. Same old, same old. He keeps doing these things. So again, it's obvious on the one hand what he's doing. Jesus knows what he's doing. He also knows that he is God and that his Father has ultimate authority over all things and and that what the devil is trying to do is say is this, look, Jesus, here's the deal. Here's what I want you, Jesus, you, Glenn, you fill in the blank. Here's what I want you to do. Take a shortcut. That's what he's saying at this point in time to Jesus. Jesus, there's no need to do this cross thing, this suffering thing. You can end that all right here. Take it into your own hands. Save yourself all that pain and suffering. For you and I today, how does that look? Well, it's easy, isn't it? Maybe I need to show it to you this way. Just watch TV. Surf online. Just go out of the theater today and just start walking, right? Apparently in 1970, many of you know my background, so you know that the statistics I have are pretty accurate. Um, experts say that in 1970, you probably were, were being inundated with about 500 impressions, images per day of brand logos, products and services. Today, it's somewhere near 5,000 a day. For those of you who are visiting, my background for 30 years in the marketplace was in marketing. <clears throat> I wasn't evil, okay? But, but listen, this, this is every day... The marketing world is putting up many, many, many good things in front of you. There are good things, products, cars, services. There, It's awesome. It's wonderful. And, and at the same time, the enemy is saying, you unsatisfied? Is life not going the way you want it? Hey, you could have this. And, of course, you've got to go into debt to get it. And on and on it goes. From brand logos to promotions, appeals, and ads, idols is just another word for kingdoms of this world, and that is what we are being offered all day long. Have you ever caved in? Hmm. Have you ever just thought, you know, if I could get that, 
Then I would be happy if I could get that house or if I could get those possessions. Jesus' answer again is beautiful. He says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. You cannot serve God and what? Mammon, money. You will worship those idols. I have, I do. We worship those idols. We depend on them. Jesus' answer is so beautiful. Again, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13, which refers to Moses warning to the people of Israel to turn from worshiping idols. <laughs> yeah. How clear can you get? Another thing we can see from these temptations so far, and even more so in the last temptation today, is that the devil is he's appealing to not only the easy way and the comfortable way, but the safe way. The safe way. With Jesus, it's, he's basically saying, take the easy way, Jesus. You know, avoid the cross. It's shame and it's pain. With you and I, it's avoid serving God. Avoid having to commit to those services and serving and those people who are pretty messed up, more messed up than you are, apparently. But you, you don't need to serve God. You don't need to give. You don't need to do all those things. You don't need to preach the gospel. You don't need to first seek the kingdom of God and all its righteousness. Deuteronomy says, Him only shall you serve. That's awesome. One final temptation, verses 9 to 11. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle, yes, of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so there you have it. I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting. Satan is not trying to kill him. You notice that? He's not, he's not trying to kill him. Well, a couple of reasons. One, he can't, and he knows it. But he's desperately trying to get him off his game. He's offering Jesus safety and comfort. He's saying, Jesus, you know your heavenly Father will come to your rescue. He, he'll, he'll just, he won't let you die, right? He'll send a legion of his angels to, to carry you up, to swish underneath you, you know, and keep you safe and protect you. You know he'll do that. I know he said he's predictable, I've said he's predictable, and I stand by that because we're seeing his pattern very clearly here. He, he's very devious as well, though. Did you see what he did? He's, he's, he, he actually does learn, right? <laughs> he's, kind, he's kind of devious here. He, he's seen what Jesus has been doing again, quoting Scripture. So he figures, here's what I'll do. I'll take Psalm 91, and I'll, I'll, I'll quote that to you. And, and I'll put that on you. I'll put Psalm 21 on you, which is about Jehovah God providing an angelic protection to those, not just to Jesus, but to those who are faithful to God. And for that, he would be putting God to the test. I mean, it was devious. Satan's basically saying, in effect, this. In the first temptations, you have shown your trust in God's Word, Jesus. You're a good boy. You're a good son of God. You've shown your trust in God and His Word. That's awesome. You're such a faithful son, which is Psalm 91 is talking about you, is what he's saying. This is what the people are looking for in a Messiah, by the way. You're a man of faith, aren't you? Listen, just jump now and prove to the people that you are the Messiah because God will come and save you. That's pretty devious. I don't have time this morning to unpack that for all the ways that he used that same logic on you and on me. 
Mark it down on your note sheets this week. Take that to small group and pray about how he does that with you and I. This is the devil's final tactic with you and I as well. If he fails or even only slightly succeeds with the first two temptations, his third is his best and last hope. So what is that then? Well, both the context here and in the Psalms is referring to faithful children. Maybe one of the contexts is this. Maybe as a Christian you're too confident. Maybe you know the Word of God and you're like, well, yeah, bring it on. I'll quote Scripture at you. (laughs) Maybe you're a little legalistic and proud. That's the point at which, from the enemy's perspective, you are at your weakest point. And yet we're thinking, we're ready. Need to be very, very careful off, obviously. So it ends with this, Jesus' answer to this last temptation. It is said, you shall not put the Lord God to your test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So what we have here is Jesus' final words. They end the conversation, but much more. And the devil knows it, by the way. He knows it. Jesus declares there is one whose word and will is perfect and cannot be put to the test. My word, your word, put to the test all the time. It should be too. These temptations, although great preparation for the next three years of Jesus' life, were also necessary for a couple of very important reasons. The number one reason, it's kind of like his baptism. Did Jesus need to be baptized because he was without sin? No, but did he need to be tempted in order to be the Son of God? Well, yes, for one really important reason. He needed to clean up our mess. He needed to clean up our mess. I already alluded to the one other time when we read about the enemy, the devil, speaking, remember? It was in the garden with Adam and Eve. How well did they do? They failed miserably. And you and I do too in them. We do it all the time. Jesus succeeds where they failed. That was necessary. He succeeded where Adam and Eve and you and I have failed. He defeated him hands down, and he will continue to do that. And so we clearly saw and hear him quoting Scripture, but let's remember how Luke started the whole story. I mean, how did he do this? I mean, you and I are going to end up in these situations. We're going to end up in wilderness, and I have one more point to make on that in conclusion, but we're going to end up in that. How did Jesus do this? Was it because he was God? No, Luke told us in the very first verse in the story, look at it again on screen, he told us, and Jesus, what? Full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, led by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He was being led by the Holy Spirit. He depended fully on the Holy Spirit through all of this. He needed the power of the Holy Spirit in his humanity, to be able to accomplish this. He did it perfectly. Why? Just because he's God? The picture for you and I is is that we too can be victorious in these things. We can be victorious in these things if we rely fully on the Spirit of the living God. So let me ask you in conclusion, are you in the wilderness today? Are you? in a wilderness today? This is kind of a crazy thought. If you're not, well, it's not a crazy thought. Get ready. 
get ready for the wilderness. I mean, there are some commentators who read that last part where it says, he departed from him until an opportune time, right? And they think, well, that's going to be the cross. Jesus defeated him. It's all over. You know, that opportune time is going to be the cross. Really? Do you remember Matthew 16 where we get the name for our church? Peter, you are the son of the living God. You are the Christ. Yeah, good for you, Peter. Jesus tells him, that's great. Upon that rock, that testimony, I will build my church. Awesome. But by the way, before that actually starts and happens, I am going to go to Jerusalem, be crucified, dead, buried, and rise again from the dead. And Peter steps up in front of him and says, what? That's not going to happen. I won't let that happen. What were Jesus' words? (laughs) Get behind me who? Satan. Yeah, another opportune time. Another opportune time. Our whole lives, by the way, are wilderness. We need to expect these temptations and this difficulty throughout our whole life. The good news, the good news is we have the love of Christ, we have the Holy Spirit with us. Therefore, we should never, ever, ever worry when we're in the wilderness. We should just simply turn to that, experience the Holy Spirit's power, be victorious over this next aspect of sin in our lives, grow from it, and be ready for the next. Stronger, bolder, growing in faith and in strength in Jesus Christ. Pray with me, would you?